0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Jonathan Bocara. Based in Paris, Jonathan is a software developer and a popular conference speaker and blogger who has a particular interest in making code understandable to humans, as he puts it in his LeanPub bio. You can read his Fluency++ blog at fluencypp.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Joe, that's without an E, Bocara, and I recommend you check out one or two of his talks on YouTube. They're excellent. Jonathan is the author of the recently published book, The Legacy Code Programmer's Toolbox, Practical Skills for Software Professionals Working with Legacy Code. The book is meant to help programmers code efficiently while working with existing code bases, which presents a particular set of challenges for professional developers. As software continues to eat the world, how we deal with legacy code is becoming a more and more common and pressing issue, and Jonathan's book is a contribution to our efforts to address it. In this interview, we're going to talk about Jonathan's background and career, professional interests, his talks and his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience self-publishing. So thank you, Jonathan, for being on the Front Matter podcast.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and technology.
1: Yeah, I I grew up in Paris, France, and how I was introduced to programming was um, back when I was uh, a kid. I was like 12. Um, so today, just to make it clear, I'm a professional software developer, I'm team lead of a software developers team so i'm basically working in programming so how i got into that originally when i was like yeah 12 or something like that um i had never heard about programming never didn't know what that was about and like one day uh, my cousin showed me his programmable calculator like that was a cool thing back then it was like the end of the th- 90s and and he showed me his little game like text-based adventure game he had made with a calculator and i remember you could like the thing would ask for your name like hi uh what's your name and you could type your name in and then he would then write hi and then your name like it would type jonathan it would say he would say hi jonathan how are you do you want to start the game and i was blown away I, I I asked my cousin, "You did that? Now you can do those things?" And he was like, "Yeah, and I can show you." So that was my first, the first time I encountered programming at all. And so I tried to like do that, and I remember remember having a hard time understanding basic concepts like variables and that kind of thing. And after a few days, it clicked. And and then I heard you could do that also in a computer and I had a computer at home. So I installed whatever you needed back then to do programming and I started to do my own text based old thing. And I re really got really got interested in that and then I started to do like games but with graphical things, like two D games. Nothing really fancy but you know, the kind of games like um, 12 or 13 year olds a guy likes to do so that's how um programming became a hobby for me and uh
0: Is that what you chose to... Well, actually, I have a question about what you studied in university. So I I checked out your your LinkedIn profile researching for this uh, interview. And you studied at the prestigious Ecole des Ponts Paris Tech, which traces its roots back to 1747 and is part of the Grande École system in France. And for those listening who might not be familiar with it, can you explain a little bit about how the Grande École system works and how they're different from normal French universities?
1: Sure. So when you finish... Um, I think the equivalent of high school in America, like when you're about 17 or 18, um, you've got a whole range of stuff you can do, right? And what I did is called um, prépa. it's a French word, it's um, like preparation classes. And that lasts for two years when you do really intensive maths and physics, essentially, what you've got, various flavors but that's that's the gist of it and those two years uh, where you cram maths and physics um, help you prepare for like a national exam Um, and there's a national ranking with this exam at the end of the two years and depending on your ranking you can choose what engineering school you can get in it's, it's it's a first rank first served basis. so the best scores get taken by the people that have the highest rankings and so on so that's the basic um, way that's working and then the engineering school lasts for three years and the really intensive part is the first two years where you where you basically work all the time um, it's I, I'm really happy to have done that. Um, I wouldn't like to do it again because you work so much, uh, but it's it's be it's within human reach. It's a it's a difficult time. You have to like, yeah sacrifice your free time for two years, but um, that lets you in a great school if all goes well, and it also gives you really interesting skills like analytical, analytical skills and be able to. Learn work and that stuff you can use uh, your whole life. Does yes, yeah, uh, sorry,
0: uh, no, that's okay. I'm just really curious. I mean, so is it is it self-directed? Are you entirely
1: on your own when you? Oh, absolutely you're not. Okay. No, 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 no. It, it really looks like school. You've got a math teacher, a physics teacher, a chemistry teacher, even a French teacher, you've got classes. It's just more intense.
0: And what happens if you do poorly at the end of those two years?
1: Well, you've got a chance to do your second year one more time and take the national exam again, except that you have a um, you don't you don't start at the same um, ranking. Like you've got you're a bit late because you had more and more year to prepare. So you have a slight disadvantage in terms of ranking, but you can make it up.
0: And what are the, I, I'm sorry that I, this is actually just something I'm particularly interested in because I've, I've never spoken to someone who's gone through it before, but I have, I have read about it. What's the exam like? So you've been studying in, intensely for two years, giving up two years. I mean, in a sense, giving up two years of your youth, but also devoting two years of your youth to learning. Uh, and then you go to this incredibly important exam. How, how does that work? Are you, is there like a, a center where everyone from the country goes or is it regional?
1: Yeah, it's regional. Um, when I went was right off Paris. And so it's quite early in the morning and, and I remember that day uh, there was mist all over the place and we were like hundreds of us walking, um, towards the center. It was like a bit like the walking dead really, because it was so early in the morning and everyone was a bit stressed out. Um, so that what it looks like, what it looks like. Um, I don't know uh what i remember i think it what you feel that day really depends on people um uh, what i remember from it is i wasn't that much stressed out i mean i had worked for it so much that it was, was going to happen and was going to happen anyway so and uh, like you you've, you've You've rehearsed for that like a hundred times over. You've made like a hundred fake exams during the year, so you you're prepared, basically. So you just go and do yourself and hope for the best. That was how I felt about it, at least. Yeah,
0: it's really interesting. There's I think a a parallel from Chinese history of, of bureaucratic exams that you might you might be aware of as well. Uh where, you know, young men uh, oh I mean it was it was gendered, of course, at the time in, in medieval Chinese yeah. history, but you know, Young men from around the country would go to regional schools, and it was actually multiple days. I was a bit, I'm a bit surprised to learn that it's just a one day, one day. Exam. Oh,
1: it's 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 not. No, no, it's uh, yeah, it's clearly multiple days, okay. even multiple weeks. I think because it's it's not just one exam with one rankings. You've got like something like four or five rankings, independent from each other, perhaps, and you can take. You can take them all, and they all give access to a different, uh, different set of schools.
0: And uh, how did it feel to succeed at the end of all that? Uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> um, yeah. One thing, I, 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 this is a bit of a history question, but I mean, the schools like the one you went to were set up to play an important role in, in sort of the, the fate of the country. And uh, in, in your in the case of your school, you know, bridges and roads and things like that. Um, originally. Um, when did it start teaching computer
1: science? Um, to be honest, I don't know. And to be even more honest, I didn't study computer science there. You didn't? Oh, okay. No, no. I, um, well, the first year is about general engineering. You do a bit of computer science, but you also do mechanics and maths and probabilities and even a bit of humanities. Um, Bit of everything, and then on your last two years you can choose to like a major, and I chose finance back then. But today I'm in programming, and I use a lot what I learned uh, from that those studies I made, and what I use is the analytical skills, the ability to synthesize stuff to explain it to people and the ability to learn and so those three or four things are key uh, at least in the programming industry which is the one i know um they're much more valuable than the knowledge about a particular technology that was like hype at the time and that's outdated now do you know what i mean yeah
0: yeah yeah definitely um uh i've got some questions about how you you got into uh Teaching people and communicating to people uh, to help them improve. Uh, sure. Before I go there, I, I'm, I, so I just discovered before we started taping this interview that you spent some years in London. Uh, how did that? How did that come about?
1: Well, um, so I majored finance uh, back in the, my school. Pont de and we have a gap year where you have to go to go abroad, uh, work somewhere for a year. It's like an internship, but for a year, which is pretty long for an internship. And so I went to London to finance because like London is the place at least in Europe to to work in finance and yeah yeah, for now. Well, back then it was, um, so I was working in finance. I was on a trading desk at a big investment bank that was called Commons Bank and I was doing pricing and that kind of things related to financial products. Um, so that's what I did in London. Then I went back to school in Paris to finish my my studies, and then I tried to continue in finance, a bit a different kind of finance. Like what I was doing in London was what we call market finance. It's about stocks and rates and shares, that kind of things. And I, when I went out of school, I wanted to try another side of, science, of finance, which is called corporate finance. It's about like performing. Um, financial analysis of companies um, to be precise that was what I got into was performing analysis of companies that was going to be taken over it's called due diligences. You probably know about that then um,
0: oh yeah I did and, a bit
1: of DD in my merger yeah
0: position days in London yeah
1: yeah right yeah so that well this particular draw was in Paris it happens but I'm sure it exists all over the world And I thoroughly hated it, like every minute of it. And what I didn't like in it was that what was difficult was the working environment. Like people were mean, had ridiculous hours, um, had to face like clients that would be really, yeah, mean and not interesting. And the the actual job was. Not so challenging. Like it was just moving numbers around. I that was at least my experience. I'm sure that you or someone else can have a di- completely different experience in that kind of job. That's what happened uh, for me, and that made me realise that this is not the kind of challenge challenge I was interested in. Um, and then I moved to the programming industry, and I use the fact that I knew a bit about programming because that was a hobby and I was extremely motivated to learn. And that's what really makes a difference in programming again. And I also knew about the, um, uh, the software that the company I got in made, it was about finance, about market finance. So I knew a bit my way around a bit. Um, but in the software industry, um, Typically, for most people I've spoken to, and for my experience, the challenge is in the work itself. Like code is challenging, code is complicated. You have to think hard to get code right. But the working environment, it's it's not where the difficulty lies. Like people tend to be laid back, and it's a nice place to work usually. And I think that you want your like your challenge is to be in the task itself, you know? Uh,
0: that's uh. thanks very much for telling that story. That's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't think I would be getting the chance today to talk to someone about what it's like to do due diligence, <laughs> uh, but for those listening, um, you know, many people may have had the experience, for example, of buying a house and before you buy the house, you get the house assessed. Imagine, imagine you were buying a multi-billion dollar house Um, you know, uh, you have to do all kinds of things like, um, check out the insurance, check out the accounting history, check out the environmental situation, things like that. You know, if you're, for example, buying a company with property in Germany, you have to look for world war II ordinance and all these things are, it's always very intense. Um, there's usually time pressure. There's a lot of money at stake and there's a lot of big personalities, but as Jonathan pointed out, once you've done it once or twice- even though it can be highly paid and seem even from the outside a little bit glamorous, the problem itself is actually solved um and you really are just as as Jonathan said sort of moving moving numbers around and shuffling papers and it's it's funny you say that because that's actually basically more or less the exact reason I got out of investment banking myself did you After two wow. and a half years it was like okay it was like i i mean i, I actually i actually Maybe was one of those guys myself who's not quite so nice. Um, <laughs> uh, I, w- I was fortunate to work in a company with very few assholes, but there was a lot of intensity, which I quite uh, uh, euphemistically I'm saying intensity, which I quite enjoyed. Uh, but the intellectual challenge fades, at least at least with respect to the straightforward aspect of what you're doing. When you start, if you start rising in your career, then all kinds of basically stepping over other people to get ahead challenges. Mm-hmm. Come, come your way, and those actually are genuinely difficult challenges and they 're complex and interesting to some people, but not to everybody um, right and if you don 't find the stepping over other people to get ahead part of it interesting once you 've figured out the kind of technical aspect of it, you can just get bored um, and so that yeah, your description of that experience really resonated with me um, it 's interesting you talk about how your your experience at finance informs your ability to communicate to people. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, so was there a particular moment when you developed an interest in helping people become kind of better programmers, better at, at tackling the real challenges?
1: It didn't happen in one day. Like I didn't wake up and run around trying to teach people. Um, I think it it like knowledge builds over time. When you when you're a developer, you have to keep learning and it's it's something nice because like most developers like learning so you learn stuff you learn stuff about the language you're coding in you learn stuff about design you learn stuff about the domain of your application um yeah you learn stuff all the time and it builds up and at some point i had a few things to share and i think there's really nothing special about that i think every programmer has something to share even younger people they have probably tips and tricks for other younger people um and senior people have obviously a lot of things to share so i had my my share of things i could i could tell people and probably um hopefully help with and so i wanted to get those things around and the thing is I wasn't quite fond of traditional trainings. Like, you know, the kind of trainings when you go all day or perhaps all week, you know, um, it's really like disturbing for your work day or work week. And, I uh, I don't know, but I'm not a really good audience. Like I, I, my attention span is fairly limited. I mean, nothing pathological, but I just don't, yeah, have such a big attention span. So, i wanted to like give away this knowledge but in a way that i would have been easy for me to to attend um either because that wouldn't disturb so much my day or because it wasn't so long so i came up with the idea and i decided to use it to share whatever knowledge i had at that at that time so this is how I, I i this is what i proposed my manager i i asked him if he was okay if i would spend 10 minutes every day right in the office to tell my colleagues um a few things i knew about c plus plus because i had read a couple of books about c plus um, plus and that's what we the language we were using and he was okay to try it and the first time I, I so I told I, I told everyone I would do that, and and then the first day I I would like stand up, and speak up, and that was really awkward, like someone standing up speaking up right in the middle of of, of the open space, uh, turning people on the things on the whiteboard. So I did it for ten minutes, and asked for feedback, and people found that they it was okay. So we did it a second time the following day and then the third time and then we kept doing it for weeks and months and years and I still do it today. Um, and that's something that's become routine in our company and I had the opportunity to speak about that at conferences or on social networks so I, or my blog and I got the word out and we labeled that dailies because it's something that happen on, happens on a daily basis. And um, so people got into it in my company. Um, I was doing C++ and someone stepped up and did Java and someone stepped up and did databases and, and so on and so forth. And in other companies, they would do that too and post that on social media or or tell me about it. And that's um nice, really nice thing. Um, now, to do that, um, at some point, you may fear, you don't have much to say, uh, like holding for every day for years or that you don't have time to prepare because like, like some periods of time, you've got like a big project or whatever. So we, we uh, put together a system to avoid that. Um, we broke down the sessions into monthly sessions. Like I would, I would do my daily C++ every day on a different subtopic. Well, I would, I would be obviously, um, a, sp- a specific thing because it would last for 10 minutes and then the following day would do something different and so on for a month or for three weeks or like anywhere between 10 and 20 sessions say and then the following month i would go do the same thing the same contents into the desk the office of another team because this is local the point of it is is that you do have to spin your chair look at the daily and carry on with your day's works so that it's 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 not disturbing for your days. That's the whole point of it. So so it's local in an office and I would do the same thing in the office next door, or I mean whoever would be interested, and then the next office and so on. And you could like have a rotating scheme over like six or seven months, which gives you a fair amount of time to prepare. Now, for people that don't have time to prepare at all, even for one month, um, I think there's an interesting mapping in terms of format between daily sessions and blog posts. A blog post is generally quite specific on a particular issue or theme or whatever. And the amount of, of, of contents you have in a blog post is typically what you can tell in about 10 minutes. So I found that blog posts are a good source of contents for feeding dailies. I happen to have a blog as well, and I use the contents of my blog to feed my dailies, but I also use the contents of blog of other people to feed my dailies. And that's a win-win situation because bloggers are all happy when their contents is diffused, and the people that makes the daily have has contents, and the people that listen to the daily Uh, listen to new contents
0: i'd like to ask you about your blog in in just a second uh but before that um i wanted to take the opportunity to ask you about a, a talk you've developed um so while researching for this interview i watched a youtube video of a talk you created called 105 stl algorithms in less than an hour uh which which sounds impossible uh but anyway everybody should watch this talk it's great so in it you present a really cool world map of C++ SDL algorithms, and you have animations showing how the individual algorithms work. And I have to say, it's the best presentation I've ever seen where the presenter is trying to teach people something about programming. I've seen quite a few. um, uh, No, I'm not a programmer myself, but I've seen quite a few sort of researching for, you know, other people uh, for this podcast, and no disrespect to any of them. But, you know, Jonathan's presentation is something special. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit about... uh, how how you went about creating that? How did you how did like literally how did you generate the animations of
1: how algorithms work and what they're doing? Oh, well, thanks. Um, well, to answer that direct questions, I use Keynote, which is the equivalent of PowerPoint but for Mac, and I use Blender, which is um, a piece of software that can make three D animations. Um, so. So to answer your first question about
0: so, how that... So just, yeah. just very specifically, so you've got a lot of... I, I, like I, This This will make sense to people who watch it, but like there's a really interesting way of moving boxes around to show how data is being moved by different algorithms. Did you actually use Keynote to do that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay.
1: I just use Keynote. I use Blender for... I don't know if you remember, but the first time the map gets on the screen, there's this... I'm not sure if I can call that, but sort of like Game of Thrones I thing. Say, I mean, you, yes, you can, yeah. because it is just like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, or it has, but it's nowhere near the the production level of quality of of the game, of the, the intro of, of Game of Thrones. But that's the spirit uh, I wanted to give, even though I didn't aim for the same quality. Uh, so there's this world map, which looks like a world map, like there's mountains and valleys and stuff, and sea. And, and the cities are the algorithms of the standard library in C++. Just to make it look clear, if you're not a programmer and listening to this show, um, what we call an STL algorithm in C++ is a piece of code that can operate on a collection of things. Like one typical thing you want to do on a collection of things is to sort them by, I don't know, by size or or alphabetical order or whatever. So the algorithms in C++ are pieces of code that can do such things. And there happens to be uh, 105 of them, uh, which are available when you install C++. Um, so the map has, yeah, or the nature, nature thing, and the cities on that map are named after the algorithm. So there's a city that's called Sort, and there's... There's a city that's called Find and one that's called, uh, I don't know, uh, Partition, whatever. And there's a, uh, yeah, all of them on the map. And when the map comes in, there's uh, this effect, which I've created with Blender, which is the thing that does 3D animations. Um, it's really not that hard to do. I didn't know Blender before that. And that's my friend, Vincent, who to which I'm very grateful to. Um who taught me how to do that uh, to like have a camera that hovers uh, over a plane essentially on which you pasted a texture texture, which is the image of the map. And um, so the, yeah, the thing goes around a bit like in my throat. So that's Blender. And, um, and the rest of the talk is like you described animations about boxes. Cause like you can see a collection as, um, a set of books um, laid out next to each other and if you want to sort them for example they would move around until getting into their sorted positions so this year i, I completely do with keynote keynote is a quite powerful thing when it comes to animations yeah that's that's amazing and just
0: again for anyone listening if sorting algorithms sounds boring and obscure just watch jonathan's talk it it won't be it won't be boring and it won't be obscure and it won't it won't take that long but uh, it it really does explain these things uh, very well.
1: So one more thing about that map to answer one of your questions about how this all came together, all that presentation. Um, there's this um, opinion uh, that's around the C++ community. It's been around for years. I think it originated in. Sean's parent Perrin, Sean Parent's talk. Uh, Sean Perrin is a famous C++ developer. Um, he made a few years back, and he explained how important it was to know what was in the SEO algorithms. And this talk is it went viral. I mean, viral within the proportion of the C++ community, but viral. <laughs> and so everyone was aware of that. Very aware of that, but. That quite a few of them there are 105 of them and we don't really know them like we know we should know them but we don't really know them so that was my topic like let's once and for all get into that and learn them all and so that's how i came with the idea of that presentation now how i crafted it um I guess you can imagine that I didn't craft it from day one the way it looks like today. Like it went through quite a few iterations and although the actual iterations, I don't think they matter a lot. um, What I, what I took away from that. And I think it's an interesting takeaway when it comes to making presentations is the thought process that, that structured the presentation. When you take the, 105 algorithms, it looks like huge lists of code stuff. And that's not something you want to look at, even if you're a programmer and you love code. Um, That's not something you can digest. So the challenge was to make that big chunk of information um, to present it in a way that would be easy to digest and to remember. So how I did that is that I looked at them each one after the other, uh, just to learn those I didn't know at the time. And and, and then I classify them. Like for each one of them, I would decide in which category it would belong. Even though there, those categories didn't really exist for me before that, for each one I would say, um, this is like sorting, this is like finding, this is like my and um, And then I had a rough classifications of the algorithms. And from that I could... Refine it, like perhaps shuffle them around, create new new classes of algorithms, and then I had this big picture. Like, there are seven categories of algorithms. Seven is easy to remember. And, and then within these categories, you had subcategories, like those algorithms, they kind of like relate to each other, so you should think about them together, you should learn them together. Um, and I think that's the value of the presentation. And then, and then when you have this classified information, um, the challenge is to present this big picture, but not to hide the data. So you want to present the actual data. You don't want to like make something really simple for dummies. You want to present the actual data, but in the big picture form. And then the rest is just the cool stuff like the map the realms um the the arms i draw arms for each of the seven families that's that's something that's really nice to do uh, but that's the thing that makes it uh, nice to watch do you know what I mean? but the underlying thing is the research of classifying things and presenting stuff with a big, big 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 picture and not hiding the data
0: yeah thanks for that thanks for that explanation it's uh it's um it's an excellent presentation you could you could kind of tell it you know it didn't happen overnight and there was a great deal of of work and I could you know iteration that went into it but it in the end it is it is um, very almost compelling (laughs) Uh, and and it is it is quite an achievement to to do uh, with this that subject matter which is also actually very important when did you start your blog Uh,
1: and who is it meant for I started my blog about two and a half years ago it was in November 2016 it's aimed at developers um, and developers who want to make their code more expressive and by using C++ because the blog uses code examples in C++ even though sometimes uh, it talks about stuff that could be applied in any language um, and on that blog uh, I, play, I publish two articles a week on Tuesday and Friday. So every Tuesday, every Friday, you've got a new post. Um, The theme of the blog, writing more expressive code, um, I chose that because after a few years, I I thought that this was the most important quality you want for your code. When you start coding, uh, the thing that matters is for your program to do what you want it to do, right? And, and then you're just happy with that. But it happens that to make a program do something, there's about a hundred ways, hundred different pieces of code you can write, a hundred different ways you can write your code to do that thing. And they're not all equally good. And when you write a piece of code, then it's probably going to stay. I and mean, if you write it just on the side to try something, you're going to throw it away afterwards. But if you write it and you're like in a company, it's going to stay. It's going to stay for a while, probably. Hopefully, <laughs> your company is going to stay with its code. And you're going to go back to it. You, you're going to have to change it at some point, because maybe there's a bug in it, or perhaps the client wants a new feature that's related that to that piece of code to extend it. And perhaps you are going to do it, or perhaps someone else is going to do it. So the thing that makes work more efficient when it comes to programming, or when it comes to actual code, um, is to make it so that someone who would read it would understand it. That's what I call expressive. So this is the biggest thing uh, I try to do for my code. And... There is there are a lot of ways to do that. It's not just like one technique to make code expressive. Although there are some overarching principles we talk about in the blog. Sorry, but there are a hundred ways. And particularly when you dig in, into the details of a particular language, um, so, which are C plus uh, So this is the theme of the blogs, and every post is related, connected somehow to that theme.
0: Uh, just before we we move on to talk about your book, um, I have a question about one particular post that you wrote. Uh, about how you can use lessons from programming to optimize your day to day life uh, and i just I just thought it was really fun and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. You talk for example about um well iterating on your morning
1: routine mm, yeah right so i 'm um, going to start from the coding perspective and then uh, move from the move on to the real life perspective so in programming, it happens sometimes that your programming is not fast enough happens. To fix that, there is one technique uh, that's really conventional. Um, It's been there for years. Um, So it's to profile it, which means run it through a program that can count how much time the program spent in every instruction it made, or every function. In a in a program, like an industry-sized program, there are like thousands, literally, or perhaps tens or hundreds of thousands of functions that get executed when you run uh, your program. It can be less on, on small projects. And every one of them takes some time. It's really short. It's like in terms of milliseconds, probably, or even less than that. But all adds up, it it can make like seconds or minutes and and that gets too long. Even like sometimes milliseconds are too long depending on your your industry, but it can add up and and be too long. Um, When you run this kind of analysis, you get a list of functions with a time and they're sorted in descending order by the amount of time they took. And there is this principle; uh, it's called the 80/20 rule. Um, that's a sort of like proportion that's all over the place in programming or in other domains. I'm sure you've heard about it. I mean, if you, I'm sure if you have like more than five years of experience in any domain, you've probably heard about the 80/20 rule. Um, it, it says that 20% of, of the causes um, trigger 80% of the consequences. That's one way of, of putting it. And in in when it comes to uh, software speed, it says that twenty percent of the code is responsible for eighty percent of the time. And some go as far as saying it as uh, saying it as ninety ten. So like ten percent of the code is uh, responsible for ninety percent of the time. So you want to aim for those ten percent. And your profiler is going to sort, sort your functions by descending order of time. And, you, and those big guys are going to stand out at the beginning. And you want to act on them, like, like focus your efforts on those big guys. And you, what you don't want to do is go around and optimize everything. Because sometimes by optimizing for speed, you are damaging expressiveness not going to get into details because it's technical about why there's this relationship but sometimes it happens and you want to sacrifice expressiveness only in places that matter and you want to act on them right so to put it into a nutshell you've got big responsible guys in your code that take time and you want to aim at them to make your program faster Right, so that's the code side of things. In my uh, daily life, I noticed that I spent way too much time in the morning to get ready. Like I would, It would take me like 40 to 50 minutes to get out of my home and I basically just take a shower. So this is ridiculous. I thought I felt I could like save a really decent amount of time for every morning and mornings, morning times matters, right? Because you can do stuff in the morning. So I wasn't sure exactly where to begin with, like, where exactly I would waste time. I, I didn't have a feeling of wasting time at a particular points in my prep in the morning. So I um, took a stopwatch and measured everything I would do for those 40 to 50 minutes. Every like, the time it took me to brush my teeth or to uh, dry up in the shower or to get dressed or to put on my shoes or whatever i was doing in the morning and then i put that into an Excel spreadsheet sorted them by descending order of time and and then i could see like the big trunks um, of time i would spend in the morning and i tried to figure out how i could optimize those specifically took actions and and now i get ready in like 25 minutes which is about half of what it was before, and 25 minutes every morning—that's yeah, a lot of value, you can imagine. So that's that's one example, but there are quite a few others.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great example. I've just got a, a flashback. I used to—I I never was so sort of systematic about it, but back in my days when I used to commute uh, in in London, actually, um, I remember optimizing my morning uh, sort of flow. And I remember one time realizing that if my apple juice box was less than half full. I could just place it on the glass and walk away and it would fill up the glass and then the box would go down perfectly flat on the table. And so I could save the time of standing there over the glass and watching it pour and use that time to do something else. And it was just just because I hate mornings. I mean, that's not like, I just hate mornings so much that it was like, I'm going to attack this problem. so uh, moving on to the subject of your thank, – thanks for that, by the way. That's just, that's just so fantastic to hear about using, using techniques like that to improve uh, your daily routine. Um, on the subject of your book, so for those listening who might not know uh, and, and for those who I guess might be triggered by it, you can skip this section. But uh, what's legacy
1: code? Right. So everyone has kind of a different definition of legacy code, but they all mean something bad. Um, The general gist of legacy code is existing code that's painful to work with, that's the general idea. Um, My definition, because I wrote a book about that so I had to have a more precise definition, it's threefold. Um, First, it's code that's hard for you to understand. You stare at it and it takes you a while to figure it out, figure out what it's supposed to be doing. Second, it's code that you're not comfortable changing because you feel you might break something or because you need free time to figure out how to integrate a new thing into the existing stuff. Mm -hmm. And third, um, it's code that you're somehow concerned with. It's code that you have to interact with in some way. Like you don't really... Um, care about code that's outside of your company. It's not your. It's not legacy code as far as you're concerned. In my definition, there are quite a few other definitions out there. Uh, there's a famous one from Michael Feathers, which is a really famous person uh, in the software industry, and particularly when it comes to legacy code. Yeah. So Michael Feathers defines uh, legacy code as code without tests, because you can test code automatically you can write code that tests code so when you change your code you can launch a program that's going to test it for you and assure you that you didn't break anything so that's michael's definition it's legacy code is code without tests Um, there are quite a few other definitions out there Um, some people feel like legacy code is the code that was there in a company before they got in but, well, yeah, essentially it's, it's around the same theme. I hope that clarifies.
0: It, it does. I, I'm just curious. Um, so would Feathers' definition be kind of like historically contingent based on the idea that code used to be written without tests and that it's only now that it's becoming more conventional to write tests along with code? I, I, I ask well, this from a position of ignorance. I really don't know
1: sure um i think yeah there's that because i think we've we've became more aware of the necessity of testing um after we became aware of the necessity of programming although um we've like as a speaking as an industry level we test stuff we've been doing that for quite a while like like test it's something that's around for decades, probably. Um, but there's code that out, that predates that as well. Um, but it's not completely correlated. Like You you, you have code that's produced today um, that doesn't have tests. And when I say test, I mean automatic tests. Like when you write your piece of code, it can be tested by a by human on the day you release it, and it can be tested again at some points. But the Tests I'm speaking in 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 well the tests Michael is speaking about is um, as far as I understand uh, tests that run automatically. Um, so so there's code that gets produced every day and that's not doesn't have that kind of test coverage. Um, the reason is that as surprising as it can sound, um, it's not something that's adopted by everyone. Like some people. Um, I've met, uh, right, I go to conferences, I go to meetups, and I get to to speak with people, and they tell me about how it's around, how it's like in in their company. Um, And like there are some people, not necessarily technical people, perhaps managers, I don't know, um, that are not really fond of spending time testing. Because when you write a test, you're not actually delivering a new feature or you're not fixing a bug, you're just writing something for the future. And like investing in the future for the future doesn't pay off on day one or very, very little. So you have to think a bit long term, even though it's not that long, usually, for your test to pay off. So some people have a hard time um, convincing the managers they should spend time in doing tests. Also, if you are convinced and your manager is convinced that you like testing is a good thing, sometimes it's difficult to achieve. Because to write a test, you have to write a program that's able to encompass the code you want to test. And sometimes it happens, and that's particularly true in legacy code typically, that some code is connected with other pieces of code you don't want in your test because they're not related and connected in a a bad way, I should say, like tangled, with other parts of the code. So isolating a piece of code can be challenging and time-consuming, and sometimes that's a reason why you can't really write a test or not easily.
0: One of the things I really liked about your book was that um, you make managing your feelings when you're faced with legacy code the very first topic that you address. Um, what is it about, for those, for those who might not know, uh, what is it about legacy code that can make it so emotionally repulsive? To programmers
1: well the first thing is if you start uh, programming as a hobby and that's th- the case for quite a lot of people like we do that out of fashion um code in companies doesn't look like what you do on your side project like if you write a game uh, a text based adventure game and you had your fun um professional code doesn't look like that uh, when you get in uh, a, a code base of a company that's been there for, I don't know, like a few months or a few years, you've got this huge amount of code that's completely loaded with domain information uh, that you need to somehow work with, right? And it doesn't really doesn't look like what you were doing when you were a student and you had your pet project or your uni project and you, it was small and you had everything under, under control and you would understand every, every part of it. Um, so you get into that and there's this difference um, that can be unexpected. Right. So that's your, I think the first thing that can make it a bit surprising. It's not, it's not a bad thing though. Like all through the book, I think, that one of the messages i want to get across is that um legacy code is not something uh it's not a fatality if you know what i mean Uh, it's something you can work with that if if you happen to have legacy code um there are hundreds of ways to work with it and that's what i explained in the the book um you can do fantastic things with legacy code uh, but you need to be prepared you need to have tools to do that and when you're just out of school and you've never heard about that yeah it can be a bit of of a shock one thing that can makes it uh, frustrating, frustrating to work with legacy code is that it can be hard to understand by definition, if you stick to the definition I, I, I gave earlier. and Understanding is something that's quite rewarding in, in programming. Um, and if you don't understand, well, it's not that rewarding. So it can be a bit frustrating. Um, and what makes it hard to understand is that like we said when we were talking about tests is that sometimes you've got parts of code that are tangled together so when you investigate one of them it relates to something that can be a bit far away so you need to understand also that remote part and you need to somehow make all this fit in your head and when there's a lot it's challenging. You can take it as an intellectual challenge, or you can just be overwhelmed. And that's one of the things that makes it uh, emotional, emotional, do you know, what I mean, um, also, there's this, um, quite natural feeling is when you, you come across codes, and you think you see a flaw in it, um, you, you tempted to think, um, well, the person who wrote it didn't know what they were doing right so they design something poorly and you have to bear the consequences today right and and that can also be uh, a bit frustrating although i think this is a completely wrong view uh, and 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 you have to change your view to be able to work with legacy code
0: and and what can you do to to manage your attitude and change your view when you're sitting there facing something because you know i've i've had you know some similar experience with complicated financial modelling. I mean, there's a lot more to mergers and acquisitions than due diligence and, and, and you know, one of those things is dealing with all kinds of complicated modelling and you know, I know what it's like to all of a sudden be in front of someone's messy, messy work mm. and, 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 and yeah and, and anyway, so yeah, that getting into the right attitude is tricky
1: Sure um, Well, the first thing is to escape that primal attitude of <clears throat> judging the code saying oh this is terrible i would have done such a better job and i don't understand i don't understand anything to this crap and i need to get out here uh, you need to escape this attitude um, the reason is if you think a bit rationally and programmers are paid to think rationally that's about our job um, well first of all um, this code is what makes the application run. You can question its quality, but that's what pays your bills. Basically, that that's that's why your clients like you. That's what makes the application exist. That's what made it develop in its first years, and that what made, made it grow and, and, and allowed it to exist today, first of all. Um, but then when you think that you would have done such a better job might be true it might be true or perhaps you wouldn't perhaps uh, the particular program problem the person who wrote the code uh, tried was trying to solve is more complicated than meets di and if you were to do it again you would face the same difficulties than than they did and you would realize it was much harder than you thought, thought it would. So maybe the person who wrote, wrote it, you can't really blame them, or not blame them uh, as much as, as, as you thought. Um, now, the thing is, the most rational thing to think is that this is the code out there. If you have to work with legacy code, you can't change it by snapping your fingers. You, You can either moan and cry all day and not produce anything and get fired or you can make make the most of it and like i said earlier you can make a lot of things with it you can make fantastic things with whatever code you get to work with or pretty much i think that's at least my opinion um so the first thing first thing when you're coming on your first day, and, and uh, something you have to hold, I think, for your whole career, is do not complain unless you want to improve the code, right? And that uh, your complaining is, is directed towards specific things you want to improve or you want to learn from. But otherwise, just complain for the sake of it. It doesn't bring anything. And it will make you more depressed, if anything. And what's even more dangerous is that it will make your neighbors more depressed, and particularly if they're younger, right? Um, I think that's something we need to realize when when you're in a company and you've been there for, I don't know, even more than a year and let alone five years or 10 years, um, you are a model for the people next to you that are younger right because they came in and they don't know what the culture is like if it's their first job they don't know what working is like i mean in the professional sense of it so they're going to watch you and if you spend your day moaning they're going to think it's okay to do that and that's the only thing you can do and they're going to moan as well right so when you complain you, you have a huge responsibility. So it doesn't bring anything unless you. this is specifically to improve the code um, and it can really be damaging. So just don't do it, right? Be rational. So that's the first thing. Now, once you left that primal attitude, uh, you need to find a way to work with the code, right? So there are plenty of specific things to do. I go uh, into details in the book, but essentially the attitude is to take ownership. At least that's my opinion. It's what my manager taught me um, fairly early on in my my, yeah, my first year of professional programming. Um, he taught me that when you have to work on a piece of code, you have to take ownership of it. Even if you didn't write it yourself, right? Maybe that's someone who wrote it. Maybe that person wrote it. 20 years ago right now this is your code right and that's your job to 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 work with it to improve it to do whatever you can to make the most of it and thinking in that perspective um, makes you more responsible and and empowers you really to 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 work with it in the most effective manner i think so yeah the second thing is to take ownership
0: and you, you write about how you can actually use to improve legacy code to improve your own programming skill.
1: Sure, yes. So that's the part when I say don't complain unless you want to improve the code. So if you find a piece of code that you don't like, it happens quite often, read code that you, you're like, meh, am not sure this is the best code I've ever seen, uh, or, or this is crap or whatever, how you want to put it. Well, what you can do is is just walk past, right, and, and and go to the next thing. Or another option, and I think it's uh, much more interesting, is to think about why exactly why you don't like it. What's in it makes it wrong, or, or makes it of not good quality. And when you start thinking about it, surprisingly. Um, sometimes the assay is not quite obvious. Like sometimes you've got this feeling that oh, I don't like this code. And when you look at it, you can't really point your finger at what's wrong exactly with it. And that requires um, yeah, a bit of thinking, like like um, decomposing it in your head, uh, trying to, to locate what exactly gives you this feeling about what's wrong about it. And at some point, you, you manage to find exactly what it is, right? And even if you, 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 you just move on, um, you've learned something. You've learned what to pay attention to. And this is valuable because when you are going to write your own code afterwards, you will have that in mind, this particular aspect of code quality, and you're gonna get it right, right? And and the more time it took to, to dig it out, um, the more it means that you didn't know about it, and, and the more you learn. Now, one option was to move on after learning that, but you can also improve it. That's called refactoring. That's a very common term in the programming industry. Refactoring means Improving the quality of the codes by keeping the application the behavior constant. Um, so once you've found what's wrong about that piece of code, you can choose to refactor it. You can't refactor. You can't refactor everything, particularly if you're working on a large code base, and you have to make some choices. And or I'm not going to get into that right now because there's a lot of things to consider. But that's what I talk about in one of the chapters of the book. But Imagine you've chose to refactor that particular particular piece of code. So you've improved it. Right. What's tempting to do is to move on, considering uh, you've done a good job, you've improved the quality of the code. But what you can do before moving on is think back about what exactly you improved, like why the new piece of code is better than the old one. Sometimes you can you can tell it's better just by looking at it um, but once again, not really being able to pinpoint what 's better, so you need to do the same kind of analysis just think about what 's changed and how it 's better um, so that you can um, you can you can use that in your future uh, code. The analogy I used for that kind of analysis is the vaccine so a, a vaccine like in you know medicine is something you get into your body a very small quantity or a harmless quantity of a disease and your body uh, spends some time uh, deconstructing it uh, examining it whatever uh, building antibodies whatever um, and and stores that somewhere in its memory it remembers it so that when you if it happens encounter the actual disease your body recognizes it instantly and smash it apart in, in no time. Uh, I think this analogy holds for code because when you've, after you've spent time um, analyzing this wrong piece of code in excruciating details um, and, and, and you found what's wrong with it and you remember it, uh, when you encounter that same problem with, uh, in existing code or when you're about to write code, uh, you're going to smash it apart. Um, you're going to spark that smash that problem apart in no time as well.
0: Yeah, that's a I, I love that analogy, um, and, and I think it's related to the concept of expressive code because expressive code leaves the memory behind of the problems that have been solved. Is that is that correct?
1: Um, yeah, I think there's um yes, yeah, so that's that to it. That's quite a few things, then, including this, yeah. Mhm. Yeah, it's it's
0: really interesting and, and you you brought up before, you know, sometimes it can be hard maybe to I've heard I've interviewed people who've expressed a similar idea before that, you know, convincing a manager that you should spend time testing can be mm-hmm. difficult because they're often like, you know, tapping their watch and they want they want forward mm-hmm. progress. Uh but as you as you also said, you know, it actually doesn't always take that long. <laughs> Uh, before you realized that there was actually a lot of value uh, in testing. And I just wanted to ask you specifically, so, I mean, you, you, you came up with the concept of the dailies, expressive code is important to you, and these, these things, are, and, you know, this vaccine analogy about preserving solutions for the future is all very important. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that kind of knowledge can be spread throughout a team and remembered for the future, like our immune systems do with vaccines.
1: Sure. Well, one obvious option is is going through wide writing, like writing documentation. Um, The thing is, um, generally, there's this trend amongst programmers uh, that people don't like writing documentation. Like you like writing code, you choose that job because you love writing code, but writing documentation, not interesting. Um, The thing is, I think there are various ways to write documentations. Um, Some of them are boring and useless, indeed, and some of them are really useful for you and for the rest of the team. Um, Well, first of all, when you write about something, or even when you explain something already, that works as well, you, by some magic, understand it better. Even though no one told you anything while you were explaining it, the very fact of, of, putting it together structuring it uh, teaches you stuff it makes you realize things makes you uh, get the big picture view. you um, makes you realize that there are holes in your understanding and makes you dig deeper so the very fact of writing is helpful for yourself and obviously for the team as well now there are good useful precious documentation and they are boring and useless documentation how can you do your documentation right. Um, I think there's a lot to it, but one of the like heuristics I found is that you need to realise that writing doc, writing documentation, is not a moral obligation. You don't do it because it's a good thing. And what follows out of that is you shouldn't write documentation as if it were homework. You should you should write your documentation as if you were explaining something to your past self. I don't know if I'm making sense here, but like it, it really it really shows. You know when you read the document that's been written like it were, like if it was homework, like it really shows, and you don't want to read that, and that's just as boring as reading as it was writing. Um, But if you write something to your past self, then you have to be clear. You have to be effective, you know, because you know that your past self didn't know uh, what you're writing about. Now, about the specific format, if it's something very generic that you discovered, if you've discovered, I don't know, something about class design, object-oriented programming, how to make your if statement look right, how to make your program faster, whatever, that's very generic, uh, then... Write it on a blog. Start your blog if you don't have one. Having a blog is uh, pretty awesome. Um, So, write it to the world and and let people know and start discussions about about what you found. Now, if it's specific to your company, uh, what you've discovered, well, the first thing is to put it somewhere you can find them, (laughs) like uh, not on your mailbox, not on your computer. but I think a good place to, to put put it is next to the code. Code is usually stored into version repositories, like with Git, for example, if you don't know Git, that doesn't matter, but if you know Git, you know what, what I'm talking about. Uh, but like code is stored somewhere, and storing doc documentation next to the code makes it easy to find it and makes it easier to make it not too much out of sync uh, with code. Um, that's also an interesting um, thing to th- think about, uh, how to make it not out of sync with code because that's one of the problem of documentation. Like people that don't like documentation um, have this problem with it that they sometimes read documentation that's out of date. And it's worse than having nothing because it it's misleading, right? It tells you information that's wrong. So you need to find ways to write about something that's not going to get out of date, but that's still useful. Uh, there are few examples that I could get into now or that, anyway, I talk about that in the, in the book, in the Legacy Code Programmer Toolbox. Um, also, you, if you... Go further into that, um, like making code and documentation closer, um, what we do typically with code is code reviews. A code review is after you've written a piece of code, you show it to everyone in the team or to at least one people. Um, most uh, versioning systems like yeah, Git or whatever uh, have this uh, completely automatize It's a process. It's really easy to do, uh, and then you can show the code to people, and they can comment on your code, saying, uh, "Are you sure you want to do that? Or isn't that a bug? Or maybe we can improve the quality of that new code." Um, so that's that's a, like what we do. Best practice of, of doing code. Uh, you can do the same thing with documentation, right? Uh, you can send it send it around the team and ask ask for feedback, and people are going to say, "Are you sure this is?" Uh, this is information is correct or even more importantly i don't quite understand what you're trying to say here could you clarify and this helps make your 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 writing clearer and make it clear is tremendously important because if you want it to be read it has to be readable it has to be clear because otherwise people are just not going to bother um Now, there are quite a few other ways, apart from writing, that you can spread knowledge. Um, Dailies are a way, of course, but you can also do um, what I call knowledge sharing in eager mode and lazy mode. So that's uh, another analogy with programming. So an eager computation is a computation you make ahead of time just in case someone needs it and it's ready so that like you don't spend time compute you don't spend time computing it when when it's needed right you don't like select the, the application doesn't freeze or whatever so that's eager mode um what you how, how you can apply it with the documentation is to spread your knowledge before people need it um like what you can do if try to do that with uh, some of my teammates and that was really great. Um, have somebody speak, uh, like make just a small meeting, just a team meeting and have someone speak about what they know on a specific topic, right? Even though this is not something someone asks specifically, um, but that's just something they know and and they had trouble perhaps understanding or that they know it would be useful and that someone is going to come across it one day or the other. And they just make a small informal presentation um, nothing too fancy just just yeah telling what you know and i call that eager because you do, do that ahead of time now in programming you have eager mode and lazy mode lazy mode is is not is doing the minimal amount of computation and and leaving the the computation to the last moment to compute just what is needed and nothing more. This is the idea behind lazy computation. I think you can do lazy documentation um, by um, knowing who to ask, right? And the day you you need this information, information, if ever you need it one day, you know who to ask. So how do you know who to ask? Well, of course it comes with experience, you get to know people, you get to know what they work on, but you can speed up that process by having people actively telling what they know about, without getting into details without getting about about explaining how things were, just just saying, "I know about such and such topics because I've worked on them right and you go around the table on team meetings, everyone spend five seconds telling what they know about, and they would be available to speak about if needed there's the um, you know in the actual uh the Agile methodology. Um, there's the stand-up meeting, typically in the morning, where people of a team gather and uh, you know speak about what they do. Um, it's not made for documentation, obviously, but that can be a side effect for lazy documentation because you hear about what everyone is doing, so you kind of have a basic idea about who would know what. But I think it's still useful to have this active approach of, expressing what you know about
0: Yeah, it's it's the uh the concept of sort of documentation for people who aren't into programming might sound a little bit um in the weedsy uh but um i i've had some experience uh one of the it it seems the, the experience i've had talking to people on this podcast um about things like documentation and these these types of processes the more Serious, the work they're doing, and the more senior they get, the more these things start to matter. Uh, I remember interviewing somebody who uh, had at one point in his career been working for a very fast-growing online gambling company, and he actually took out months and months to do proper documentation. Uh, and uh, it was extremely serious work and extremely important because, you know, if if like there's actually like serious money. At stake in sort of these like second by second transactions happening all the time. And uh, he ended up being the chief software architect for a major British bank. Um, and, you know, it anyways, as he's like, you know, this, this, you know, there are people who sort of don't like testing, there are people who don't like documentation. But in my experience, you know, it's people who take those things seriously. Uh, for any young programmers listening, it's people who take those things seriously, who uh, maybe go far. My last question about your book, uh, you write, you write that you love maybe maybe this is related to what i was just saying or i I hope it is but you write that you love doing code maintenance um and that you know that's not something that most people sort of boast about and i was wondering if
1: you could talk a little bit about about why
0: why sure doing that
1: yeah um so maybe maybe let's just explain what that means in case someone is listening and not sure what maintenance maintenance is so produce producing a, a piece of software Go through about two phases um there's the the time you develop it so you, it doesn't exist and then it exists and that's the first phase you release it and then it lives and people use it and people go back to you because they want to change it they want to change it because there's there, there are bugs for example they want to change it because um, they want to add stuff for example so the maintenance I, I was thinking about here is is like when you're fixing bugs like a client goes back to you say this doesn't quite work properly could you fix that for me please um generally developers are not really fans of making maintenance like i can vary obviously from people to people but from person to person but it's a bit like documentation, not quite as much. Documentation is—it's—I think it's much more frowned upon. But maintenance is, yes, definitely not the number one activity. Um, I happen to quite like it, which may sound a bit weird. Um, but why do I like it? Is—it's it's because I find it—it's it, a bit like, like a game, really. Like, you know that some part of the application is not working properly. Like a small, I don't know, like something is not displayed the right amount or whatever. And this can be um, either rewarding or frustrating. depends on how you tackle the thing. The thing is that you have to find in that huge amount of code where exactly lies the source of that problem, right? And that can be quite a challenge. So, if you just roam around and and look at the code and search for something that's wrong in the code that's related that to that feature that's not broken properly, it's a nightmare, really. Um, it's, it's like just wandering around and, and in desperation. Um, so I think that's probably why people don't find it interesting now if you if you have a a process to locate the source of a bug um then you know it just becomes a, a matter of time and there is a process i'm not sure we've got the time right now to to get into it but it's it's in two of the chapters actually of the book uh, i could i could go into it if you want but it's a bit long ish um
0: uh, maybe if so, we just b- b- briefly explain it, but
1: you know, we want people to be buying your book, so... <laughs> uh, right, so um, essentially the first thing is not to look at the code. It sounds a bit weird because the problem is in the code, but you don't want to look at the code. Uh, you want to to play around with the application. You want to somehow isolate the problem from the application perspective. You want to Test around and with some specific processes, uh yeah, I'm not going to go into those this level of details, but you want to play around with the application to find where exactly what sub part of the sub part of the big feature is wrong it is it has the bug, and then you go in the code to that specific position um with the hypothesis in mind maybe this this is the right place to look at, and you look at it and if you've made a good job. Uh, reducing the size of the problem, then you 've got not so much code to look at, so that's like huge amount of code you don't have to look at and if you don't know that code and if, it, if it's code, if it 's code that 's hard to understand that's just as much you've you've, you've saved um, and you check if it 's the right hypothesis and and if it is then cool and if it 's not, then you go back to the application and change be the parameters and and, and and so on and when you have this approach, and you've done it. You've done it enough times so that it becomes a second nature. Uh, maintenance is like a game because you know it's just a matter of time before you 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 you, you really track down this the source of the issue. Um, sometimes it's not the case. In very exceptional cases, there there are other factors at play, or more technical or whatever. But in most of the cases I've, I've encountered, this is. This is how you want to be efficient, um, and that really makes the experience much faster and much more rewarding. Well, in, if if we can like take a step back about what we've just said about maintenance, what you've we've just said about documentation, um, even what we've just said about legacy code, there are parts in the job of being a programmer that people don't find nice, like maintenance writing documentation handling code that someone else wrote um well this is th- these are not popular activities but if you want to like you say go far you have to embrace them because this is your job you can't just do part of your job you can't just say well i like writing new code and that's it this this, this is there's no such job right programming um, has a full spectrum of activities that in the end contribute to make your product awesome right and you want to be part of of the largest part you, you can and even if, if if this involves maintenance and documentation and reading code that you didn 't write yourself that 's something you want to be excellent at because that 's your job and that 's what what will get you far
0: it's uh it 's really interesting to me that you talk about um the part where you're using the app to kind of isolate the problem as closely as you can as a game because that's that's actually personally how I approach it uh, when with Leanpub when we're sort of doing a big release one of the steps near the end is like Len, go break it um and uh and I've always tried to approach you know as a non-programmer like I have to I have to figure out conceptually like how can I make sure that it's not two problems? It's just one problem that I've isolated and have I done all the other things uh, to make sure that it is just this one problem and not something else. But, but it is very much like a game and it actually is enjoyable. You know, it's like go, I mean, it, it's enjoyable for me because I'm not the one who actually has to fix them. I'm just them. to but them. But it is actually an enjoyable activity. To, and, and as you say at the end, you know, like, or as, and as you said earlier, you know, the reason you're here in the first place is because there's some code out there that's working. At least a little bit, um, <laughs> and and that's a good a good way to approach what what you're doing uh, to to start from that foundation. So uh, just moving on to the last part of the interview, um, and so where we where we talk about being a, an author and writing, uh, I wanted to ask you uh, how you found out about Leanpub and why you chose Leanpub as your platform.
1: Sure. I I first heard about Leanpub because I heard about a book that's on Leanpub. Um, that book is called Living. Documentation. It's uh, written by Cyril Martre. Um, it's actually about writing K documentation. Um, so that's how I heard about you guys. Um, now, when I decided to uh, get into the project of writing a book and uh, self-publish it, I I looked around for looked around for different options, including Leanpub, and um, I I think I got I had quite good feedback about you guys, and quite terrible feedback about some of your competitors really like I went on forums and i'm not sure i want to name names about your competitors here but like some people got emotional with some of uh, the other people out there um so yeah lean look, looked fine and i don't know perhaps i can also answer that question after the fact like now that i know lean uh why would i uh, what, what would I advise my past self to choose it? <laughs> um, one of the great things you guys have is your support. You've got a fantastic support. I was absolutely impressed. Like Whenever I had a problem with that technical about, the, I don't know, generating my PDF or or feedback about the platform or whatever, I would just shoot you an email and you would answer within – the day or half a day or even a few hours sometimes. And like one evening just before the big release, I had a like kind of emergency with my book. And I think it was you, Len, yeah. You answered like within, I don't know, half an hour, something like that. And we solved the problem. And that really matters in that, in that moment because this is like a big moment and you don't want to screw that up. So I want to thank you for that, by the way.
0: Oh, well, thanks. I mean, the one thing I'll say is that um, we do try to have very good support. One of the things that I'm particularly sensitive to is that when an author writes a book, it's a labor of, of love and time. And it's based on things they've thought about a great deal. And they often have great hopes for what they're doing. Mm. Um, and I think this might be related to, I mean, I've talked to some people who got emotional about their experience with publishers and, and other platforms. And it comes from that same space. Mm. Um, that what you're doing is really when you're writing a book, probably what you're doing is very important. Maybe it's more important to you even than it ought to be. Um, but when it comes to launch time and things like that, when you when you feel like you may have lost work or something like that, when you you've just done a big chunk and something's not working, you know we're not. You know we're a small team. We're not always going to be there twenty four seven. But you know I can say personally, like I don't care if it's like midnight and i've had a couple of beers and if i see like an author's having a problem Mm. i will you know personally try and help them because like that you know that's really important and it is it is it is a personal thing
1: yeah it really really shows and uh yeah i think it matters a lot what i also appreciate is um your landing pages because they're so simple like when you look at them you've got the cover and Big size and bit of blurb, and you've got this cursor, which I find really awesome. Like people can pay the price they want. Basically, um, there's a suggested price, a minimum price, and you can pay whatever you want as long as it's at as, as least equal to the minimum price. And um, yeah, I think that's that, that's really cool. That's a cool feature.
0: Yeah, that um, that in particular for anyone who's listening who doesn't know Leanpub has a variable pricing model, which means that an author sets a suggested price and a minimum price for their book. And then uh, a reader, a, a potential customer can take their mouse and they can actually move this slider around so they can take it from the suggested price and move it to the minimum price, or they can move it even higher. And um, one thing we found after releasing that feature years ago was that people would be, mo- we, we because I mean, to kind of boast because LeanPub pays such a high royalty rate, we can also show the author earns slider underneath the mm. when you're paying slider. And, people actually move the author earns slider, uh, sometimes that's actually more important to them than, than what they're actually paying in the end. They're like, I want to make sure the author gets $10 or $20 or, or whatever it is out of this. And it actually does, I, I have this feeling that it actually, it really does change the relationship uh, that the customer has to what they're doing in comparison to a sort of normal commercial transaction. Mm-hmm. Just a couple more questions about your book uh, sure. one, one is um, is engaging directly with people who have already bought your book important to you, for example, getting feedback about things like typos
1: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, in the very last section of my book there 's the getting feedback thing like I, I leave my email address and I welcome any piece of feedback about the book and yeah i 'm um, absolutely interested in in chatting with people about the book or about the topic of the, of the book um in in general um um like i want to know my readers problems basically with legacy code um to see if i can bring more or i don't know perhaps adjust the book that it's it's the most useful to them and and it really makes an impact in their daily life working
0: so this has been almost a feature-length interview now um so i'm going, i'm going to <laughs> Jump to my last question, which is which I always like to ask of authors, which is if there was one thing we could fix for you on Lean Pub or one thing we could build for you, and you we would do whatever you asked, what would you ask us to do?
1: Sure, Uh, there's a couple of things. Okay. If I should should I choose just one? No, no. Can I say a couple? Okay. Right, right. Um, Well, there's um, got a few people have asked me about paper printing, Um, like it would have been fantastic for them to choose either the PDF or the printed version of the book and to have them have it delivered to their mailbox. That would be perfect for them. Now I realize this is probably hard to implement, um, if you're not Amazon or whatever. Uh, but at least as a workaround, I know that you guys make available a PDF that's nicely formatted to, to, to go to Lulu or Amazon or whatever. Uh, but it would be nice so I have a very detailed step-by-step basis to, as an author, how do I get my paper print out? Like, on which website do I go? How do I do that? Do I, am I involved in any storage or whatever? How much money would I get paid? Um, like, really detailed things because we don't know. Like, I have no idea how I should do that really like should i do it myself should i organize the printing and and give out copies to the people i meet in real life or should i go on amazon uh, how much money would i make on amazon would i be even like seen at all on amazon um how do i do that technically on which website do i go where should i subscribe That like a thousand questions i'm asking and i have no idea and to be honest i'm not really interested in, in digging out for myself and i think if you make a tutorial it could help like hundreds of authors, with uh, just one document. So that would be my first suggestion. Um, the second one is um, it relates to the Markua. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh,
0: Mark, Markua.
1: Markua, sorry. <laughs> uh, so the Markua, for people that don't know, is a – correct me if I'm wrong – a specific flavor of Markdown. So Markdown is um, – sort of a formatting language like you can type your taste text and when you want like a, say a word to be in bold you you surround it with two stars for example so you write plain text but you sort of embed the formatting information in it so that's the gist of markdown markua is a specific flavor of markdown um so i had a bit of trouble really uh, getting everything right like the images size and uh getting code in the text and having line numbers or not line numbers and for some reason the thing would just was just not do what I would ask. So I I didn't ask correctly obviously. But I wish it it were a bit simpler to format the book with Markua uh and yeah perhaps show tutorials I, I mean i know that's a super long uh, page explaining the Marku i think but i i i i am like I, I feel i could swear I, I did exactly what was on the page and for some reason it didn't just give the right result yeah.
0: um yeah thanks thanks for both of those uh pieces of feedback um when it comes to you know using lean Pump something you've written on LeanPub to then go and, and make print versions available. We do have a print-ready PDF, but we actually don't explain how to do it. We're just like, go to Lulu or go to, go to Amazon. And, and we provide you with all the details of, of the things you're sort of going to need, but we don't really place them in the context of a bigger story about what you're, what you're doing. So we give you everything you need, but we don't exactly explain. Mm-hmm. We don't actually explain like why precisely this here. Um, and yeah, that's a really good uh, suggestion. And I'll Put it on my list of things to do to make a post, and maybe, in fact, probably even a better thing to do would be in our next author newsletter. We'll just invite someone to write a guest post about mm. their their experience doing that because you know it's kind of hard one hard one knowledge when you've gone through it. Surprise. Um, and, and when it comes to Markua, Markua um, is not fully implemented yet, so it doesn't have a sort of full proper manual, like old time lean pub flavored Markdown does. So right now Markua is more of a, like a, a technical specification Mm -hmm. than than a manual. Um, and one day we will have a manual that explains things, not in a sort of like, as though you were building your own Markua processor way, but as in a, in a, like I'm writing a book kind of way and Mm -hmm. that that should make it easier when it comes to, you know, I swear I did things exactly right it didn't work out in the end. You know, I, I have that feeling as well uh, with all kinds of things. And hope, hopefully when we have a sort of proper kind of manual rather than a specification,
1: um, that I, I, will be less, less common in experience. I understand. Um, there's one last suggestion I wanted to make. It's about the online editor. So on IPUB on InPub you can choose either to write your book Online, on the website of LeanPub, there's a, a bit like a kind of wordpress thing, like you've got the text field where you can type in your book, or you can write it on your own and upload it somewhere on the internet, like on a repository like Bitbucket, for example, and there's no one that, don't qu- oh yeah, it's probably GitHub. And and LeanPub somehow connects with this online repo and and pulls, pulls out the the book um so about the online editor initially i i wanted to use that because i felt it was all at the same place and it would make things convenient because all the settings of your books have to be on on the leap website so i thought the book might just sway with that as well um so i went for that as well at first and i i have to move away from it and and go for the Bitbucket thing or github because it doesn't handle versioning so if i change something i lose what i think at least i lose um what was before and that's a bit scary you know um and uh i in terms of ux i think there are quite a few things you could do to make it more friendly um I, I don't know if it's a good example, but I use WordPress for my blog, and I found the interface excellent. The old one, the new one, Gutenberg is a catastrophe, in my opinion. But if you know the old one, uh, it's awesome.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the the, the straightforward feedback. I actually, I'm, it's a bit of a digression, but I have heard about Gutenberg being a catastrophe hmm. uh, on from from WordPress users. Uh, People who use that to write their blogs, um, our, our in-browser editor. Um, there's there there are two. There's one called a visual editor, which is for people writing genre fiction, and I'm pretty sure that's probably not the one you're using. You're probably mm. using the Markua one. Um, yeah, it's something that we. I mean, we intend to improve both of them, but in particular, the Markua in-browser editor is something we know that we need to do. Uh, oh, there's a, so much room for UX improvement there, with respect yeah. to versioning. Every time you create a preview or publish a new new version, we actually do save a version of your manuscript. Oh, do you? If you? Okay. If, if you go to your, like, your book's URL, and then, like, at LeanPub and then slash versions, mm-hmm. um, you'll see it. It's, it's in it's in the menu also uh, when you're in your right. book, book right. tools. But we actually do save a version of your manuscript. It's like you need to, like, kind of download it and then look at it. So it's nothing like proper Git or anything like that. But, but like, you know, like I was saying before, like, you know, being sensitive to how much authors can be afraid of losing work and stuff like that. We've we've got this versions thing. Every time you create a preview or publish, we save a version of your manuscript for you. Uh, so that like, you know, if all is lost, you know, mm-hmm. that, that is that is still there. So there's internal to LeanPub, there's no comparing, uh, there's no diffing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but those manuscript versions are saved. Cool. And if you're really, yeah. So yeah, thanks for
1: that. that. Yeah, I I, I don't, I obviously you don't have to say, but perhaps you may want to, I don't know, hide it altogether because until it gets a better UX, because for me, it was just a not so good part of the experience. And when I moved away to Bitbucket, I felt much better. Um, so now you have to know how to use Bitbucket uh, to be able to use it. So I guess maybe you have authors that don't write about programming and and are not familiar with it. But, you know...
0: Yeah, it's uh, thanks. Thanks for that, Noah. We really appreciate hearing hearing about. Um, uh, you know, not every people are often overly polite and don't tell you about the bad parts of their experience. And so it's it's. Exactly. I mean, we we know we know that part of Leanpub could use a lot of improvement, and that it's not the best. Uh, and I, I think that just watching sort of our statistics, uh, more and more people over time are becoming familiar with services like GitHub and Bitbucket, mm-hmm. uh, and how powerful they are. And so most people actually, when they see that they've got an option to use GitHub and Bitbucket, they just kind of ignore our in-browser markup. Like if they if they if they want to write in plain text and learn learn a, a new markup, they're probably going to be sophisticated enough or whatever to be using to, right. to, to be be desiring to use something like GitHub and Bitbucket anyway. So, which is why which is why we don't encounter this this issue so hmm. often. I, I th- I'm just guessing, but I'm guessing so, that, yeah, people just probably just don't try it.
1: So you mean that that the online editor would be mostly used for people that write novels? So yeah, so there are two there's two
0: online editors. There's the one that's where you write in plain text in Markua, and then there's another mm-hmm. one where it's actually a WYSIWYG, what you see is right, a WYSIWYG right. editor. And and that one is just that one's that one's mostly for like you can't even you, you can't you can't upload images in that mode and that's very right. it's very it's very deliberate. It's like mm-hmm. if you, if you pick up a Dickens novel probably, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, well, actually, that's probably a bad example because they actually did, a lot of them did have images. But if you pick up a conventional genre fiction novel, there's probably no pictures in it. There's probably no underlining in it. You know, yep. there, there's, there might not even be any italics. You know, there's just like, you know, words in paragraphs. And right. Then, and so we made a visual, what we call a visual editor to be precisely for that experience. And, then, and And so, and then, but separate from that in browser, you can also write in plain text in Markua if you want to. But that's the one that you're describing that, you know, Needs a lot of work. Okay, uh, um, and that is like sort of on our list of things to do. Right. Okay. Well, uh, Jonathan, thank you very much for taking the time to do this, and and, and so much time. I really appreciate that. It's all. It's this is all sort of you know we covered a lot of ground, which is very useful. But it's also, of course, very useful for us. And one of the re- reasons Leanpub advances is because authors like you take the time to give us feedback, like you did at the end of this interview. So we really appreciate that. Sure. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. And thanks as always to all of you for listening to this episode of the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. And if you're interested in becoming a Lean Pub author yourself, creating a book or a course, please go to leanpub.com and click on Why Lean Pub.